You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to History of the Netherlands where we explore the events and characters that, over time, have transformed the swamp into an amazing modern marvel. Episode 49, The Willing Bride. The double marriage between the Habsburg and Spanish dynasties organized in the creation of the Holy League in 1495 was part of a larger plan driven by the Spanish monarchs to create a general European-wide alliance against the French. To further these aims, Ferdinand and Isabella also arranged for their other children to marry into the Portuguese and English royal families as well. Such good family planning, however, was not to yield anywhere near the results that Ferdinand and Isabella sought. In this episode, we will track the tumultuous journeys leading up to the weddings, which brought Spain and the Low Countries together, the devastating repercussions the Spanish monarch's religiosity would have for the Jews of the Iberian Peninsula, as well as a series of untimely deaths which would see the Spanish succession repeatedly shuffled down the line. When the music stopped in this dynastic game of musical chairs, Philip the Handsome and Joanna of Castile's five-month-old baby son Charles would find himself perched on the stool which held possession of a ridiculous amount of Spanish, Imperial, and Burgundian titles, all of which would eventually make him the most powerful person in Europe. On the 5th of November, 1495, two proxy marriages were conducted in Mechelen in the time-honored tradition of procurated knee-touching. The first of these marriages bound Prince Juan, the Crown Prince of Castile and Aragon, to Margaret of Austria, Emperor Maximilian's daughter and former queen-to-be of France. The second saw Maximilian's son, Philip the Handsome, Archduke of Burgundy, married to Prince Juan's sister, Joanna. After these ceremonies, the great bastard of Burgundy, Anthony, who, remember, was one of Philip the Good's many bastard children, member of the Golden Fleece, and was still a highly influential figure at the age of 75, went down to Valladolid to perform this rite on behalf of Philip in early 1496. As everybody had learned from Maximilian's failed proxy marriage to Anne of Brittany, these ceremonies were as good as useless if somebody else rocked up with enough swords to shout, I object! To make it all official, the happy couples would still need to meet up in real life, 
They would have to tie the knot in person and then hopefully consummate the whole thing and produce more heirs to whatever territories they were due to inherit themselves as quickly as possible. We will get to that shortly. As important as these two marriages might be for our particular interest, the Netherlands, they were actually part of a wider web of marriages which were being arranged by Ferdinand and Isabella, which cemented the connections between their newly consolidated Spanish kingdoms and other European powers. Ferdinand and Isabella had five children who had survived beyond infancy and into marriageable age. They were, in the order by which they were born, Isabella, Juan, Joanna, Maria, and Catherine. We already know what matrimonial fortunes await Juan and Joanna, but what about the others? The eldest, Isabella, had been married in 1490 to the heir apparent of Portugal, Prince Alfonso. This Alfonso was the grandson of the King of Portugal, who had married Isabella of Castile's half-sister and gone about contesting the Castilian succession, which we spoke about in the previous episode. The terms of the treaty, which ended that war, stipulated that Alfonso and the younger Isabella would marry in an attempt to repair the relationship between Portugal and Castile. Alas, just one year after they'd been married, Alfonso died in a horse-riding accident, leaving Isabella a grieving widow and the link between Portugal and Spain seemingly severed. It would be mended, however, when Isabella was married to the new king of Portugal, Manuel I, in 1497, five years after her previous marriage. The terms of this arrangement would have dire consequences for a significant minority of people in Portugal, people who had already been forced out of Spain because of religious persecution. In the previous episode, we skipped over the extreme religiosity of Ferdinand and Isabella, and as much as we would love to skip over it forever, it is going to become an ever more defining part of the story we are trying to tell. So, we need to start letting it in, bit by bit. Much like we already saw in the Low Countries, in the 14th century, there was a deepening of Jewish persecution and social isolation in Spain. In 1391, there had been brutal pogroms against Jews in Spain, and as a result of this and subsequent atrocities, many Jews converted to Christianity in the following years. These people were known as conversos. Being conversos did not guarantee them safety from the suspicions of religious fanatics, however, who remained deeply distrustful of the growing power and social status of conversos and would accuse them periodically of being Christian purely in name, but still practicing Judaism in secret. Those who did keep their faith secretly were offensively named Muranos, though these days the more politically correct term used in academic writing is crypto-Jews. In this unstable religious atmosphere and in the midst of the succession war in Castile, Isabella and Ferdinand were keen to stamp their authority on their newly consolidated kingdoms. They wrote to Pope Sixtus IV in November 1478, asking for permission to root out heretics amongst the conversos. Two years later, the first two inquisitors were named, with this eventually developing into a powerful judicial body under Isabella's personal confessor, Thomas de Torquemada. To quote Francois Sawyer in his book, the persecution of the Jews and Muslims of Portugal, quote, There followed a period of intense repression of the conversos, 
hundreds of conversos were arrested, put on trial, and found guilty of having relapsed into their former faith, end quote. Over the next two decades, thousands of people were burnt to death, imprisoned, and or had their possessions confiscated, which in and of itself brought vast sums of wealth to the crown. On March 31st, 1492, Ferdinand and Isabella issued the so-called Alhambra Decree, in which they resolved, quote, to order the said Jews and Jewesses of our kingdoms to depart and never to return or come back, end quote. This was to be done by the end of July that year. The exact numbers here are impossible to determine exactly, but it's estimated that about 200,000 people converted to Christianity following this decree, while between 40,000 and 100,000 people left Spain. Many of those who fled Castile found refuge in Portugal, even if circumstances there were often as hostile as the ones which they had just left. The then King of Portugal, João II, allowed 600 families to stay, for a sum of course, while the rest would be given eight months to arrange their departure from Portugal too. When João died without heir in 1495, the crown of Portugal went to his cousin, Manuel I. Isabella and Ferdinand wanted to re-establish dynastic ties with Portugal and so wanted their widowed daughter Isabella to then marry him. But there was a catch. According to some accounts, the younger Isabella strongly believed that the influx of non-Christians into Portugal was an offence to God and that she would only agree to the marriage if the Jews and so-called heretics in Portugal were kicked out of that land too. Others, such as the Venetian ambassador to Burgos, emphasised the role that Ferdinand and Isabella played in this atrocious deal-breaker, saying, quote, The king and queen of Spain refused to promise or hand over their daughter to the king of Portugal if he did not first of all expel all the Jews from his realm, end quote. Whatever the case may be, Manuel agreed, and on December 5th, 1496, he also issued a decree to expel all Jews from Portugal. Two weeks after this, Pope Alexander IV issued a papal bull known as Si Convenit, in which, in recognition of Ferdinand and Isabella's efforts in uniting their kingdoms, conquering Granada, expelling the Jews and helping to free Naples, he conferred upon them the title of the Catholic Monarchs. The expulsion of the Jews from Spain and Portugal is going to have a large impact on the Low Countries, as many crypto-Jews from the region and their descendants will find themselves moving to the Low Countries, of whom a large portion will settle in Antwerp and later Amsterdam. But that is for later episodes. While all of this was going on, Ferdinand and Isabella were also busy weaving another thread into this complex web of alliances by arranging for their youngest child, Catherine, to marry into the English royal family. Again, this match was politically motivated because Ferdinand and Isabella wanted to bring England into the alliance that had formed against the French in the shape of the Holy League. Negotiations had taken place for English King Henry VII to join the Holy League when it first started, but he was hesitant to do so because of Maximilian. As you will remember from episode 47, one of the many things on Maximilian's plate was his explicit support of Perkin Warbeck, that random Flemish guy who was going around calling himself the King of England. This had led to extreme suspicion between Henry and Maximilian, neither of whom trusted the other's intentions. 
which if you ask me, was probably pretty good instincts. And this was something which Ferdinand and Isabella would have to overcome if they were to successfully establish this triple alliance against France. To try to manipulate the situation in their favour, Isabella and Ferdinand used their youngest daughter as a marriage prospect for the English monarchy. It took a bit of time to come to terms. Maximilian kept making demands of Henry VII that he would be obliged to attack France if he joined the League. But Max was overridden by the other power brokers in the League who agreed to let Henry in as long as he did not support France. In return for this, the League would promise to not support France against Henry VII. The end result of these negotiations was that by July 1496, Henry VII and England had entered the Holy League, and in October of that year, a marriage treaty was settled upon, which would see Ferdinand and Isabella's youngest daughter Catherine married to Henry VII's son and heir, Arthur, the Prince of Wales. Both Arthur and Catherine were only about 10 years old at this point, however, so the actual marriage wouldn't take place for a while yet. Spoiler alert, this Arthur is going to die before he ever becomes King of England, but Catherine will still become the Queen of England when she later marries Arthur's younger brother, who will become King Henry VIII. You know him, the one with all the wives, some of whose heads he had chopped off. Well, Here's the first one of these wives, Catherine of Aragon. As for the Perkin-Warbeck situation, that problem sorted itself out when Warbeck attempted to invade England in late 1497 with just 120 men, after which he was captured, attempted to escape, recaptured, and was then hanged at the end of 1499. Now, as we've been going through this, you may be thinking, alright, Spain... England, the Empire, but what about Burgundy? What about the Low Countries? Do you even remember them? Well, yes, we do. When you mix family and politics, you are going to get a bunch of issues. As we mentioned in episode 47, Philip had different governmental things to think about in regard to his policies than Maximilian did. Philip was a native prince, and he had the incumbent expectations of this position heaped on him from childhood. He had been raised by a local nobility that had shown a capacity to revolt against the prince if need be, and he had also been taught to rule the low countries, which, with its highly urbanized nature and increased status of the state's general, was a way different proposition than ruling an oligarchic empire that stretched to the east. In his early rule, Philip thus displayed a proclivity to take on his advisor's opinions readily, but also to cooperate with the state's general. All of this meant that Burgundy's position within this network of alliances being built against the French should be viewed independently from his father's. Furthermore, his sister Margaret was by his side. As she will demonstrate over the coming decades of our tale, she was intelligent, capable, and not one to just carry out the wishes of her pater familias. As Vim Blockmans and Walter Prevenir put it in their book, The Promised Lands, quote, Archduke Philip the Fair and his sister Margaret of Austria resisted pressure from their father Maximilian. The independent stance of the natural rulers enjoyed the warm support of their subjects, end quote. Maximilian threw his weight around to try to maintain authority over his princely son, 
The emperor had based himself in Innsbruck in his Austrian territories and was visited there from late May 1496 by Philip. The Archduke of Burgundy was joined by an illustrious entourage, which included some of the upper crust of the Burgundian nobility and members of the Order of the Golden Fleece, such as the Lord of Chievre, Willem de Croix, the Lord of Berkenob Zome, Jan van Chlemus, the Lord of Molenbeek, Baudivine II van Lannoy, and Engelbert of Nassau, as well as the Bishop of Liège, and also Philip of Cleves. Even though Philip of Cleves had been at war with Maximilian not that long ago, he had always done it in the name of Philip the Handsome, and he was once again, though not for much longer, a part of Philip's court. Also along for the ride was one of Philip the Handsome's most trusted advisors, his tutor, Franz von Busleiden, as well as Maximilian's right-hand man in the Low Countries, Albert of Saxony. Albert of Saxony, remember, was the figurative stick with which Maximilian hit people to get what he wanted. Albert had been waging war alongside Max in Helders until the uneasy stalemate that we spoke about in episode 47 had settled. Philip was making this trip to Innsbruck during that period when Maximilian kept summoning Charles of Egmont to the Reichskammergericht to answer for his supposed breaking of the peace in the empire, but Charles kept on refusing to go. Albert of Saxony wanted to do what sticks do, and go and break some bones. Franz von Busleiden, on the other hand, was one of Philip's inner circle who was promulgating peace with Helders, thereby frustrating Albert of Saxony, who did not hold back his complaints about this government. There is no record or account of what exactly Philip and Maximilian spoke about during this time at Innsbruck, but based on the now differing interests that each had, one can presume it was about Helders, France, the upcoming nuptials, and why the hell is Philip not doing what Maximilian wants? Usual father-son stuff, like that, one imagines. At some point shortly after they arrived in Innsbruck, Philip dismissed Franz von Busleiden for a period of four months, as well as other members of his council who were pro-France and therefore pro-peace with Helders. Busleiden was replaced by Jean Carondelet, who had been Maximilian's chancellor. In this case, it is evident that Maximilian still very much saw the Low Countries as his personal domain, even though Philip was the Archduke. By getting rid of these members of Philip's council, Max must have been satisfied that he was seemingly bringing Philip more closely to his point of view and away from those of the councillors who had not been pushing Max's agenda. The satisfaction he felt must have increased when in October 1496, the actual real-life not-proxy marriage between Philip and Joanna took place. You know, the one where they got to touch more than just knees. Joanna's trip to the Low Countries had proven to be quite an ordeal in and of itself. Due to hostile relations between the Holy League and France, it was not exactly possible for Joanna's wedding procession to simply march its way across land from Spain through France up to the Low Countries. Instead, they needed to go by ship. But you can imagine how potentially fraught with danger this was, not only for Princess Joanna herself, but also for the whole network of alliances that this marriage was crucial to. They could be attacked by the French and possibly killed or captured, either of which would be ruinous for the Holy League. As such, a massive fleet of around 130 ships, led by the Admiral of Castile, 
was assembled in Laredo, just west of Bilbao. There, the Infanta Joanna and her mother Isabella bid each other an emotional farewell as she embarked for her new life as the new Archduchess or Archiduquesa of our beloved swamp and presumptive Holy Roman Empress. You know how sometimes people say, it's not about the destination, it's the journey that matters. Well, whoever says that did not go on this journey because this one was terrible. Many historians on this subject describe it similarly, so we're just going to quote one of the flowery old ones just for the joy of getting to say words like tempest and inclemency in what feels like the right setting. This was written in the 1830s by William Hickling Prescott, By the time they got to the Low Countries, the fleet had, quote, been so grievously shattered, however, by tempests, as to require being refitted in the ports of England. Several of the vessels were lost, and many of Joanna's attendants perished from the inclemency of the weather and the numerous hardships to which they were exposed, end quote. When they finally arrived in Zeeland in mid-September, Joanna was disembarked and met by a group of nobles, But her husband, Philip, was not amongst them. He was still busy discussing his future with his father in Austria, which must not have been the kind of reception she was hoping for. Joanna set off to Antwerp, where she waited for a couple of weeks for her husband to show up. Before we go on wrapping up this part of the story, which we will after an ad break, let's have a quick look at an example of what an average person's experience within this whole situation might have looked like. It is believed that the cumulative number of crew in this fleet from Spain to the Low Countries would have amounted to between 15 and 20,000 sailors and soldiers, the majority just being ordinary lower class men. Again, numbers on this are absolutely not definitive nor reliable, but based on speculation and almost certainly exaggerated contemporary accounts. But evidently 130 ships, it was a lot of men. Given the travails of the fleet, it seems that some of the soldiers and sailors must have also died on the journey there, but for those who remained on board, as the fleet limped into Arnhemauden in Zeeland in early September, this awful adventure was nowhere near over, because not only was it their duty to bring the Spanish princess, her retinue, and her vast amounts of gold and wealth northwards, but to also bring the Habsburg princess southwards for the second part of this wedding doublet. Thus, they had to wait until the important people decided that the return journey was ready to be made. In his description of this whole event and the wedding, Burgundian court chronicler Jean Molinet spends his usual amount of words, i.e. almost all of them, waxing lyrical about the luxurious fashion and the fineries on display by all of the pompous people at the party and the entire build-up towards the wedding, that he finds any space at all, amongst all this talk of frivolity, to mention the plight of these common sailors and soldiers who had been left languishing in Zeeland while this party happened, is indicative of how extraordinarily horrific their experience became. In Molinet's words, as translated in the book Antwerp 1477-1559, quote, When winter came and the north wind swept the land, 
They marveled at the cold and blew on their fingers and complained bitterly, so that when a day came a little warmer than before, they asked if winter had passed. Either the change of air, or of food, or the thinness of their clothing, or some other cause, brought on a pestilence, and three to four thousand of them succumbed. End quote. Yes, if you did not catch that, while this highly political wedding party was going on, thousands of Spanish sailors and soldiers were waiting around, dressed in clothes probably more suitable for Zaragoza than Zeeland, while some sort of disease ripped through their number and killed them in their thousands. Despite the absolute horror of this, I do really like that quote, because having worked in Netherlands tourism for years, I can really relate to the imagery. Up until the pestilence part anyway, Molinet pretty much describes every Spanish tour group I have ever seen here, standing around in inappropriate clothes, blowing warm air into their hands, wondering if winter is over yet, while it's still October. It's also just worth chucking in here that it is believed that the disease which was ripping through the Spanish ranks in Zeeland was syphilis, supposedly brought to Europe by Spanish sailors who had raped or had sex with indigenous people in the Americas during Columbus's missions there. Although this view of syphilis's origins in Europe has been challenged, in recent years, this incident in Zeeland has gone down as the first recorded outbreak of the disease in the Low Countries, and is one of the reasons why the disease was known in Dutch as the Spanish pox. So, with that bleak experience behind us, let's go headfirst into another. Here's an ad break. See you on the other side. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the welcome back. Philip and Joanna's marriage was made fully official in the town of Lier on October 20th, 1496. Once that was done, the time had come for Margaret of Austria to put all those freezing and syphilitic Spanish soldiers and sailors in Zeeland out of their misery and make the return voyage to Spain so she could do her part in the double marriage and complete her nuptials with Prince Juan. All the risks about traveling near France, which we mentioned earlier, still applied here. She must have heard all the details from her new sister-in-law and her entourage about just how awful their trip had been, and we imagine Margaret must have been quite trepidatious. She certainly had reason to be, as it was midwinter by the time they were ready to go. The first weeks of 1497 saw storms battering the English Channel and the Zeelandic coast delaying the departure by order of the Spanish admiral who was heading the fleet. It was not until over three weeks into January that, even though storms still threatened, there was enough of a break in the weather to set off. But they didn't get far. According to Molinet, when the fleet was in the English Channel, the weather turned for the worse, 
and they needed to quickly find safe harbour, doing so in the town of Southampton on the southern coast of England. Luckily for Margaret, Ferdinand of Aragon, her new father-in-law, had been able to rope England into the Holy League, so they didn't face a hostile reception. We have a few letters to Margaret directly from the English king, Henry VII, that exemplify what kind of good relations could be garnered from the sort of tidy diplomacy that Ferdinand and Isabella had been conducting over the previous years. The following was written to Margaret in Henry VII's own hand on the 3rd of February, 1497. Quote, Dearest and most beloved cousin, desirous the more to assure your excellence that your visit to us and to our realm is so agreeable and delightful to us that the arrival of our own daughter could not give us greater joy. We write this portion of our letter with our own hand in order to be able the better to express to you that you are very welcome and that you may more perfectly understand our good wishes. End quote. That's pretty friendly. And I'm sure she understood perfectly what level of amity she was experiencing. If she didn't, it was embellished upon a few days later in a second letter from the king. Quote, As we hear that the wind is contrary to the continuation of your voyage, wishing that your highness would repose and rest, our advice is that you take lodgings in our said town of Southampton and remain there till the wind becomes favorable and the weather clears up. We believe that the movement and the roaring of the sea is disagreeable to your highness and to the ladies who accompany you. If you accept our proposal and remain so long in our said town of Southampton that we can be informed of it and have time to go and to see you before your departure, we certainly will go and pay your highness a visit. In a personal communication, we could best open our mind to you and tell you how much we are delighted that you have safely arrived in our port, and how glad we are that the friendship with you and our dearest cousins, the King and Queen of Spain, your most benign parents, is increasing from day to day. End quote. What a charming cat. She's on her way to get married, Henry. Nah, come on, why don't you just stay here, hang out in my kingdom a while. We can get to know each other. Despite the king's delight and invitation, Margaret was keen to get to Spain and numerous attempts were made for them to get going. One of these resulted in the ship that she was actually on ramming into another as they attempted to leave the port so that she and her ladies-in-waiting had to be put on a kind of lifeboat and rowed dangerously into the wind in what must have been a genuinely terrifying experience back to Southampton. Eventually, however, the fleet was able to get out of the coastal waters and make its way to the Bay of Biscay. Unfortunately for Margaret, however, her ship then became separated from the rest around the time that the weather completely calmed down and they were left languishing, floating around without wind in their sails. But then, the weather roared back into life in a worse storm than what they had previously gone through. For a nice description of this, Let's go to Jane de Jonge. Quote, For days the Spanish seamen fought for the life of their crown princess. No one on board but had taken leave of his own life, even Margaret. End quote. This means that everybody thought they were going to die. We haven't really mentioned it up until this point, but Margaret of Austria was well-educated, witty, and something of a wordsmith. 
She really enjoyed writing poems. One academic, Peter J. Eubanks, goes so far as to say that, quote, a careful examination of Margaret's poems demonstrates that her meter, style, emphasis on the infinity of suffering and insistence on the act of writing as an arbiter of immortality, end quote, means that she should be classed amongst the rhetoriqueurs. The rhetoriqueurs were a renowned group of poets in Burgundy and France from this period, which includes such illustrious members as chroniclers we have quoted time and again, George Chastelain and Jean Molinet. So, during this storm, staring her mortality in the face, thinking she was going to die, Margaret turned to writing in order to process it. Jane de Jonge continues describing this moment of existential doom, quote, And in the midst of her sick, desperately wailing ladies-in-waiting, she was able to summarize her own short existence as a princess with refreshing mockery in a two-line epitaph, which, it was said, she had someone bind to her hand together with a purse of gold pieces for a royal burial, end quote. So she wrote a short poem and then tied it to her hand with a bag of gold so that if she died and her body was found floating somewhere, whoever found her would know what to put on her grave. Remember that writing was, to her, an expression of immortality. So what immortal essence of herself did Margaret want the prevailing world that endured beyond her miserable death to know about her? Quote, Here lies Margaret, the willing bride, twice married, but a virgin when she died. End quote. Bearing in mind that this has been translated from Old French into more modern English, it's still a brilliant snapshot of authenticity coming from a contextual period that is so often littered with obtuse, superfluous language, such as what we saw in Henry VII's letters to Margaret while she was in Southampton. This is real, and it can be read a couple of different ways. It can be seen as a teenager staring at death and being sad about the fact that that she had never gotten to experience sex. Or we can look at it in the context of her being a young, noble woman, raised with the understanding that her obligation was to breed and produce more nobles, which socially had to happen via marriage. Now, as she stared into the brink, what she saw was that in her young life, she had gotten through the boring and tedious part of the process twice, but have failed to fulfill her duty to reproduce. Perhaps there is a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B, but either way you look at it, it's funny and charming, and I don't think many people in a life-threatening situation would have the mental capacity to sit down and write a pretty witty poem as they're dealing with the stress of it all. And in French, too. As you might have guessed, Margaret's self-scribed and somewhat whimsical elegy never had to be put to use. The storm passed, and despite their worst fears, the ship stayed afloat. In March 1497, to everybody's great relief, the Spanish monarchs received word that the new crown princess's ship had limped unexpectedly into the port of Santander, not too far from where they were presumably aiming, Laredo. Arrangements were made, and the Infanta Juan, with his father Ferdinand and a large retinue that included clerical big shots, who were there to bless it all, set off to meet Margaret. Juan was, to put it nicely, not very robust. He had a frail constitution and was exhausted or fell sick easily. 
Historian Samuel Sanchez y Sanchez writes about this in an essay titled Prince Juan and Callisto, in which he explains, when Juan was suffering from some kind of illness in 1491, his doctors recommended to his parents that the best course of action was for the young crown prince to eat a diet of turtles. The problem, though, was that there weren't enough turtles in Castile, so King Ferdinand wrote to his chief advisor in Valencia, saying, quote, The turtles that were sent to the illustrious prince, our son, are finished, and it is a great inconvenience that they do not exist due to the great benefit that experience shows to do in his person, end quote. Ferdinand then orders his advisor to scour the city of Valencia looking for more turtles and to send, quote, 40 of them each month and send them to us safely without dying, end quote. He also told them that if there weren't enough in Valencia to send to Mallorca to look for them instead. I guess then when the ones in Mallorca ran out, he'd just go scouring Italy after that. Lots of turtles in Italy. There's Leonardo, Donatello, Raph. Couldn't resist. Sorry. Anyway, back to it and away from this turtle tangent. According to Juan's tutor, Italian humanist, Spanish diplomat, chaplain to the monarchs, and from 1500, official chronicler of the Spanish court, Pedro Matia de Angleria, despite his frailty, Juan was an old head on young shoulders. Taking into account the conventional etiquette of flamboyant flattery that we always see in communication to royals, in a letter to Juan, Matia wrote, quote, Hail to the old man who was surprisingly young. End quote. He tells him that every person with whom the prince engages, quote, whether nobles of class or servants destined to serve the humblest of fortune, praise, extol, and admire thee. End quote. I'm not sure whether the folk waiting around in ponds in Valencia, desperately looking for turtles upon royal decree, were extolling the young prince. But no matter, be that as it may, Juan, the Prince of Asturias, does go down in history with a pretty good reputation as being thoughtful and considerate and beloved by his subjects. But he also represented something which his parents badly needed to be beloved. He was the embodiment of the United Castile-Aragon powerhouse that now also included whatever fortunes awaited the Spanish in their proclaimed new distant territories. The court life that Juan had grown up in was solemn and religious and awash in pompous etiquette. This differed somewhat from the court life that Margaret and her retinue were used to. Burgundian and French courts were more jaunty than the Spanish ones. William Hickling Prescott, again in wonderful 19th century language, described the task of the Low Countries folk who had accompanied Margaret to Spain as them needing to, quote, reconcile themselves to the reserve and burdensome ceremonial of the Castilian court, so different from the free and jocund life to which they had been accustomed at home, end quote. Margaret got a pretty quick taste of the burdensome ceremonial stuff that the Spanish were into. Her entourage made their way to greet the King of Aragon and his son and heir, her husband, remember they were already married by proxy, Prince Juan, who apparently was himself not a fan of fanfare and was already exhausted from the trip they had just made. Juan watched his bride approach his father and according to the protocol in which she had been carefully tutored, kneel and kiss his hand before she did the same to Juan. 
According to Molinet, again, at this point, quote, clarions and trumpets, tubers and horns thereupon let forth a blaring fanfare so loud and high that one could not have heard the Lord thunder, end quote. This was a tremendous moment indeed. Over the next few days, the entire entourage went south to Burgos. Margaret was brought to the town hall there, which she entered walking under a baldequin, which is a big ceremonial canopy that all the governors of Burgos had to hold up above their heads. More ostentatious ceremony ensued. She entered the town hall, and there she met her new mother-in-law, Queen Isabella, and her swag of attendants. Margaret did as convention demanded, and, kneeling, kissed Isabella's hand. Then each of Margaret's ladies-in-waiting had to do the same. Then, each of Isabella's ladies-in-waiting had to kiss Margaret's hand. That's fine. Except there were 90 of them. Nine zero. It It must have taken forever. They're probably still going. Honestly, though, there is a real chance she got some kind of friction burns. So often was her hand grazed by some random Spanish woman's lips. Honestly, we humans, we have spent so much time throughout history, engaging in just the wackiest stuff. Anyway, Easter soon followed this and she got to know her family and even charmed Isabella, shocking the Spanish court regulars by the informal and jovial nature with which she engaged with her new mother-in-law, the absolute monarch of Castile, who along with her husband, quickly became fond of Margaret. On Easter Monday, the young couple undertook another wedding ceremony, just close family and friends, before setting off for a week's honeymoon, literally just to have some time to themselves. This was no doubt so they could get on with their private royal duty, which was to produce an heir, before undertaking their public one. This latter was to entail firstly another wedding, before spending months travelling around Spain, making joyous entries, taking fealty from countless towns and cities and estates, feasting at banquets, applauding at tournaments, attending festivities, and just generally frolicking around. Oh, and speaking of frolicking, that brings us to this episode's edition of Bet You Didn't Know That Was Dutch, the English word frolic, meaning to move about in a cheerful way, just like Juan and Margaret were doing, comes from the Dutch word frolic, meaning merry or cheerful, prancing around with glee. Bet you didn't know that was Dutch. All of this frolicking around by the royal couple added to the overall public vibe of excitement. Like so much of Europe, Spain had seen its share of local wars and brutality and deprivations over the preceding decades, and now, here was this young couple who would be the monarchs of the peaceful, prosperous, and united Iberian kingdoms into the future. The problem is that this was all just too much excitement for the Prince of Asturias, Juan. Margaret's husband's already frail health waned ever more. There is a fair bit of discussion that this was due to that classic affliction that we mentioned in the previous episode, immoderate coitus. Pedro Martir de Angleria, Juan's tutor and aforementioned chronicler, goes quite hard on this angle, though we should definitely take his word with a grain of salt. Martir wrote of Margaret, quote, If you saw her, you would have an idea that you were looking at Venus herself. What in beauty, size, and age Mars could have wished for for Cytheria, just as she was sent to us from Flanders, without disfiguring with any makeup, without dressing up with any art? You would say that it was Arishia, escaped from the hands of the frozen Boreas. 
but we tremble at the thought that all this may one day bring us unhappiness and perdition to Spain, end quote. He then later goes on to say, quote, our young man, meaning Juan, burning with love, got his parents to arrange his marriage bed, finally reaching the desired hugs with Madame Margarita. But only a couple of months had passed, and already the multiplication of the desired embraces and the continued boiling of pleasure had alarmed the prince's doctors and King Ferdinand himself, although not the Catholic queen, accustomed to the natural robustness of her husband. End quote. 30 year old dog. Indeed, so concerned were they at his hyper-exhaustion that Juan's physicians at one stage begged Isabella that he be separated from his young, voracious, and vivacious wife. But Isabella refused, apparently saying that, quote, It is not convenient for men to separate those whom God united with the conjugal bond, end quote. Yeah, the Catholic monarch Isabella was not going to let people interfere with her son's godly union. And it would seem, at the very least, that since arriving in Spain, Margaret had made sure that the lament that she had written when she thought she was going to die at sea would never be a factor again. She made sure that she would not die a virgin. Strangely, though, if these rumors are to be believed, her husband would die from too much sex. In late September 1497, about six months after Margaret's arrival in Spain, Prince Juan contracted a fever, probably from tuberculosis. Ferdinand and Isabella found out that Juan was deathly sick while they were on the border with Portugal to celebrate the wedding of their eldest daughter, Isabella, to Manuel, the King of Portugal. This was the marriage we mentioned earlier that had come at the cost of thousands of people being displaced because they were Jewish or had been identified as such. Upon hearing the news of Juan's illness, Ferdinand rushed to his side, arriving just before he died. But that was it for Juan. On October 4th, 1497, the Prince of Asturias, the Crown Prince of Castile and Aragon, and just 19 years of age, succumbed to his illness. For the second time in her young life, being around 17 at this point, Margaret of Austria went from as good as wearing a queen's crown to being cast away from the state's governing apparatus through zero fault of her own. There was a prolonged deep and grievous statewide mourning, although there remained some cause for sustained hope. Margaret, now widowed, was pregnant. Perhaps there would be a new heir. Tragically, though, as you're probably getting to understand the pattern of Margaret's life at this time, this hope would be extinguished not long after, when her child, a daughter, was prematurely stillborn. This poor woman, Margaret would stay in Spain for a short while longer, seemingly continuing to be treated with love and kindness by her no longer parents-in-law before she would make her way back to the Low Countries in late 1499. And that was the end of her Spanish adventure. Even though she had not, in the end, given birth to the heir of the Spanish kingdoms, in the strange way that things work out, in a few years she will come to be the guardian of the heir anyway. And those strange ways went something like this. After Prince Juan died, his elder sister, Isabella, the Queen of Portugal, now became the Princess of Asturias and heir presumptive to Castile as well. 
There was debate in her father's kingdom of Aragon about whether a woman could inherit the crown there, but we are not going to get into that. Around this time, however, the Catholic monarchs received another piece of information. Their new son-in-law, Philip the Handsome, to whom they had wed their second daughter, Joanna, had begun to style himself as Prince of Castile by virtue of his marriage to Joanna. This sent a shudder that has been described as disgust through Isabella and Ferdinand. Joanna was the next in line after Isabella, although around this time Isabella did also become pregnant. Nonetheless, this foreign Habsburg-slash-Burgundian prince was now frighteningly close to the Spanish thrones. Isabella and Ferdinand hurriedly set about getting the Portuguese monarchs, their eldest daughter Isabella and her husband Manuel, to bring their retinues to Toledo and do all the necessary oath-swearing that would ensure their right to succeed Isabella and Ferdinand in Castile. They then went to do the same in Aragon, and this is where there was a bunch of contention about the whole female succession matter. Again, not going to get into it, other than to say it became a protracted, frustrating process that stretched into late August 1498. No conclusion was arrived at, nor was any needed in the end. On August 23rd, Isabella, the Queen of Portugal and Princess of Asturias, went into labour and gave birth to a son, Miguel. An hour later, however, Isabella passed away in the arms of her mother, the older Isabella, who had just lost a second child in the space of a year, which must have been heartbreaking. Baby Miguel's maleness certainly solved everyone's issues of succession in Aragon. In him, they had not only a male heir to the crowns of Castile and Aragon, but also to Portugal. This really could have been a watershed succession for the Iberian Peninsula. The Catholic monarchs quickly went about having all the same oaths of fealty made to him and had themselves sworn in as his guardians. Their new grandson was the perfect foil to the evidently growing ambitions of Philip the Handsome, over there in the Low Countries, styling himself as the Prince of Castile. But for Ferdinand and Isabella, the year 1500 would be a very emotional one. They got another grandson, a Flemish one even. He was born in February in Ghent to Joanna and Philip. They named him Charles, after his great-grandfather Charles the Bold. Over in Spain, however, later that year, yet another tragedy struck the royal family. Miguel, the infant heir to the three Iberian thrones, died shortly before his second birthday. No amount of fealty can stop that happening. This, of course, threatened to break all those bonds that had been built between Spain and Portugal, but then, in October 1500, Isabella and Ferdinand whipped out their last remaining unmarried child, Maria. Yes, we mentioned her at the start, and we bet that you thought we forgot about her. But here she is. She was married to her dead sister's widower, Manuel I of Portugal. It would be up to them to try to make more heirs to the Portuguese throne, but as is tradition, with young Miguel's death, the right to succession in Castile and Aragon passed on to whomever was the next in line on the conveyor belt of potential Spanish monarchs who were alive. This was, of course, Isabella and Ferdinand's third child, the new mother of the baby Charles, the wife of Philip the Handsome, and the Archiduquess of Burgundy, Joanna. Joanna's baby, Charles, 
was already from birth the presumptive heir to Burgundy and the Holy Roman Empire. With the death of his cousin, Charles had now also acquired the presumptive rights and titles to the crowns and thrones of Castile and Aragon, along with the Spanish self-proclaimed and papally verified rule over the Americas. And he wasn't even five months old yet. When it came to this infant, who would grow into Emperor Charles V, the world really was his oyster. His sudden and, you might say, unplanned inheritance would bring vaster regions of the world together under single European rule than had ever been seen before. And we will get to all of that another time. For now, we are going to leave things right here. Until next time, doi! Thanks for listening to History of the Netherlands. Well, we have a bit of housekeeping to get through, but we promise it's worth it. And there's a special treat right at the end, especially if you, like Julian, thoroughly enjoy heavy metal music. If you follow our Twitter feed, which you all should, at History of NL, you will probably know that Julian is himself busy dealing with matters of succession and is shortly due to receive his own heir. As such, we are going to go into hiatus mode again for a little bit while Julian enjoys sleepless nights and dirty nappies. Hopefully these last three episodes have sated your desire for Dutch history for the meantime. We did want to push the political story forward a bit so we could go into this short break at a satisfying point in the story. The birth of Charles V, the future ruler of, quote, the empire on which the sun never sets, end quote, seems like as good a point as any. The year 1500 has often been marked as the ending of one era and the beginning of another. According to this, we are now entering the early modern age. Real life is not that tidy though, and we have skipped over a few bits and pieces to get to this point, but we will return to them in future episodes. Our vague plan, when we return to the main chronology, no promises when, but hopefully it won't be longer than two months from now, is to veer away a bit from the political Game of Thrones side of the story and instead look at some of the broader societal issues bubbling away amongst the more numerous and other parts of low country societies. These are going to play a rather dramatic role in shaping the upcoming 16th century and once we've set the basis, we will dive back into this upper echelon political maneuvering part of the story. In the interim, we will also release a bonus episode of the Low Countries Radio, so keep your eyes on the feed for that. It's a good one. And yes, we've already made it. Furthermore, this podcast simply would not be possible without the help of the absolutely legendary listeners who have signed up to our Patreon page. They get access to the show early, they get ad-free versions of each episode, and they help us do what we love doing, which is reading articles about monarchs 500 years ago, ordering their staff to go looking for turtles, which they can feed to their sickly children, and then telling all of you lovely people about it. If you want to join the party, then head on over to patreon.com slash history of the Netherlands and join up to the mutually beneficial trade agreement, which we call the Intercursus Magnus Patreonus. This week, we would love to give special thanks to the following participants in this beautiful agreement. First of all, Mary Teresa Howell. Maria Teresa, the Empress of our hearts. Thank you very much, Mary Teresa. Then we've got Eric B. 3234. Well, we all know that Eric is Banana Man. Eric is Banana Man. Thank you very much, Banana Man. 
And then we've got Bill Fun Low, Buffalo Bill Fun Low. Thank you so much. And then there is Was the R. Was the the artist formerly known as Doctor. And then finally, maybe you go by Ronnie, but we're gonna call you Rony Rivera. What it's like having a Rony. What it's like having a Rony. What it's like. Now, Vanilla Ice was not the heavy metal thing that we promised you. This is it right now, and really recommend that you stick around to hear this out because it is amazing. Way, way back in episode 19 of History of the Netherlands, take it on the Ote side, we spoke about Louis, the Duke of Orleans, who was the brother of the insane French king, Charles VI, and who was assassinated in the streets of Paris on the orders of John the Fearless, the then Duke of Burgundy. You might recall that in 1393, Louis of Orléans, way before he was murdered, had had the big brain idea of bringing a flaming torch to a performance of dancers who were wearing very flammable clothing, which then resulted in a conflagration that left four of the six said dancers dead. One of the two dancers who had survived had actually been the Duke of Orléans' brother, the French king, Charles VI. Unbeknownst to most people there, he had decided to secretly dance in the performance. This infamous event became known as the Ball of the Burning Men. In that episode, we made some joke about how Ball of the Burning Men would be a fantastic name for a heavy metal symphony. Well... Praise be the internet, because one of our listeners, the incredibly talented Nicholas Martin, heard that throwaway line and thought, you know what, that would make a great heavy metal tune. So he did what others only dream of doing and went ahead and made it. It even includes samples of hurdy-gurdies to get into the medieval spirit of it all, which is just fabulous. Nicholas makes music under the name Exchanger, and you can find his work at exchanger.bandcamp.com we'll put a link in the show notes but he's been kind enough to let us put it here at the end of this episode for all of you to enjoy as well the lyrics are in the show notes as well if you want to sing along and we just want to say nicholas you're an absolute superstar thank you so much for sharing this with us we have spent many moments enjoying your work as for everyone else if any of this podcast inspires any kind of creativity We would love to know about it because it's all part of the sphagnum opus that we're trying to create. Anyway, you'll hear more from us again in the next episode of The History of the Netherlands. But for now, please enjoy The Ball of the Burning Men.
This has been a production by Republic of Amsterdam Radio. Transform your home in one weekend with paint from Menards. Get a paint that combines durability and gorgeous color. Dutch Boys DuraClean Interior Paint and Primer in One offers stay clean technology, making your home stay beautiful and clean longer. And with Dutch Boys Easy Opening Smooth Pouring Container, transforming your home has never been easier. Save big money on Dutch Boy paints and head into Menards to get your paint project started today. Save big-